0: Amen. Well we just sang the Apostles' Creed, what we believe, what Christians through history have believed. And today as we continue our walk through the Passion of Christ in Luke, we're actually going to discover why we believe what we believe. We're going to find ourselves with Jesus on trial. If you remember it's three in the morning, archaeologists found evidence of Caiaphas's home where this trial's going on. We looked at that last week. The evidence of this architectural rendering of what they found was there was a location owned by a high priest where there was a spot that was a holding tank that Jesus would have been held that night. We learned about four weeks ago that over a thousand people showed up in the garden to apprehend Jesus. They brought him back here to Caiaphas's house. Archaeologists have found that there's actually an outdoor uh, a courtyard here where Peter would have been able to see Jesus at a certain angle when Jesus looked at him. Jesus would have been held in this section, and these are a bunch of religious people who are putting Jesus on trial at a kangaroo court at three in the morning. I want you to imagine that as we're heading into Thursday, and Jesus in the next 24 hours from 3 a.m. to 3 p.m. the next day will be crucified, beaten four times, interrogated by multiple groups. And in that we come to our passage, verse 63 of Luke 22. Again, these are religious people holding Jesus. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, Prophesy! Who is the one who struck you? Ha <laughs> And many others, they, they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, it's now 6 a.m., the elders of the people, the chief priests and the scribes now have shown up. They came together and led him into another council, their council, and they're going to be interrogated again. Now embedded in this passage are four names of Jesus, four titles and two four descriptors for him. So the first one is that he is a prophet. They, they say this in mocking, but there's some real evidence here in the passage we're going to look at. Let me continue reading. They say, well, if you are the Christ, tell us. He said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. You say you're a court of law, it doesn't matter what evidence I give you, you're not going to believe. You've got a no means belief. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. I'm in a lose-lose situation here. And hereafter, after this moment of you seeing me, the Son of Man, here's our third name of Jesus will sit at the right hand of God. Then they all said, are you saying you're the son of God? He said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, well, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, with that in mind, let's look at our key verse for today. As we look at these four names of God Two of them I'm going to push together because you're going to see they're the same way of saying a different thing. The key verse today comes directly from these religious people. What further testimony or evidence or exhibits do we need? We have heard it straight from his own mouth. So they've gotten the evidence now straight from the horse's mouth, or in this case, straight from the source's mouth. The source of these claims, the source of this evidence, and they've heard it. Now As we look at these four names of Jesus we're going to find those three main applications here. Looking at the evidence for what he claimed, we're going to, number one, discover that we can trust his timing because of his claim to be prophet. We're going to be able to trust him as king because of his claim to be both Christ and the Son of Man. And we can learn a purpose in our life and how to represent God in this world when we understand what's meant by the Son of God. So let's look at the first name together as a piece of evidence. Evidence number one is that he is a prophet, Exhibit A. So they are going to use this in a mocking term, but the irony here is dripping when they say, Prophet, then prophesy. Now the men held him and they say, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Now the word blasphemy is when you claim to be God, thus Jesus will be killed for blasphemy, Or it can be, in this case, when you don't give God credit for the things that God can do. So they're saying, you're not God, therefore they blaspheme him by not attributing to him the attributes that belong to him, by their mocking, by their beating. Now, though they're saying this in mockery, come on, prophet! The irony is, everything about this day, this moment, this hour, and this beating has already been prophesied. He's literally living a prophecy as they're beating him. If we go back a few hundred years to the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, which speaks of the Messiah, it says, in contrast to what you think, that he's going to be a reigning king and everything's going to be all good, no, no, no. The Messiah, the prophet, is going to be beaten. Isaiah 53 says it this way, he, the prophet, is going to be oppressed. He's going to be afflicted. Yet he's not going to open his mouth. We're going to see that next week with Pilate and Herod. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter. Like the Passover lamb is slaughtered, the Messiah will be slaughtered. And like a sheep before a shear is a silent, he opened not his mouth. So Jesus is being beaten, fulfilling prophecy while they're saying, Speak! And he's staying silent. In keeping with prophecy. And remember, we have learned in this series over the last six or seven weeks. That Moses, 1500 BC, set up a series of seven feasts. 1500 years in advance. And Jesus, as predicted, is dying on the feast, on the day predicted and put in place 1500 years in advance by Moses. He's dying on that very day. He's also going to die in that very hour. Josephus Flavius, you'll learn a lot about tomorrow, uh, next week as well, he actually records that the priests would blow the ram's horn at 3 p.m. on Passover. The gospel writers record that Jesus dies on the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., at the exact moment the horn declares that the priests are going to start slaughtering the Passover lambs. God has so timed his plan. His plan is so much in place that he has got Jesus 1,500 years in advance predicted to be beaten, to be crucified, to be killed on this day, in this way, on this day, and even at this hour. So the application for you and I is if we understand, and this is just one of 100 prophecies, we looked at the the rooster last week or two weeks ago, as one of the predictors. You can trust God's timing in your life. It doesn't always feel that way. I mean, imagine you're Jesus. Hey, Jesus, are you in the center of God's will? You ever felt that way? Here's life. And God's like, you're in the center of my will. I got a timing. I got a plan. I'm going to use this in your life. Thank you. Thank you. Could I have another? But you can trust God's timing. And when I think about the last two years, the challenges that we've been going through. And my wife um, had an epidural about ten days ago. Many of you have been praying for her and asking about her. She's got at least half her pain she's out of at least temporarily. So it's been a, a much better two weeks than previous three months. But it does not feel like the timing has been perfect. It has not felt like I'm in the center of God's will. But I know if God has figured out so many other things that looked hopeless, looked difficult in the moment and God work them together for good, I can trust God in the middle of my time that he has a plan and his timing is good. You know, often people on Facebook don't know when my birthday is because a couple of years ago, I, before my daughter was, was engaged and now married, she and her um, boyfriend at the time were getting serious. So Beth and I said, hey, let's all go to Disneyland together. So we went to Disneyland together and just had a great time getting to know him and getting to know her and while we're on this vacation when i showed up to get my room they handed me a button and they said well happy birthday mr hoven it was march not my birthday month and of course what did i do did i correct them no i said thank you very much and i put the button on and i wore it all week all week it was my birthday. All week, people gave me... Uh, they sang songs to me. Chad is great. We gave them a chocolate cake. We went to a Japanese restaurant, had my button on. They bought me food. It was awesome. It was a week of celebrating me. <laughs> I thought, now, why did they think it was my birthday? And I remember two months earlier when I made the reservation, on the little form, it said, are you celebrating anything? Well, yeah. Hmm. If I get a chance, I'm going to celebrate my birthday. Well, they come to Disney every four or five years. So I'd forgotten I did that. Well... Now, everywhere I go, people are celebrating my birthday. Well, So I post these pictures on Facebook, and my mom comments amongst everybody. Everybody else, happy birthday, Chad, happy birthday, Chad. My mom's like, a little early, isn't it? <laughs> to which I comment, shh. About a month later, we had a retreat with our staff. We went down to Nashville. We are at the Grand Ole Opera Building, and we got to stand at the very place that Johnny Cash you know, and many others played their music. And the tour guide said, hey, does anyone have a birthday? This is April now. Three staff members said, he does! And what did I do? I'm celebrating my birthday today. And they all sang happy birthday to me right there in the Grand Ole Opera. So the timing of my birthday has always been suspect. And I think one of the reasons we don't trust God's timing is because we really want every day to be our birthday. We don't want to have a beating day. A difficult month, a difficult year. We want every day to be comfort day. I'm the center of attention day. But it is possible that you can trust God to be in the center of his will, even on beating day, even on challenging times. That there is a God who can work as a prophet, and you can trust his timing. But you can also trust his beating. And I want to talk about his beating for a moment, because he's going to be interrogated four times, punched, blindfolded four times in the next 24 hours interrogated, scourged, skinned, crown of thorns, nailed. God turns his back on him. And when you think of the bloodiness, the scourging, the beating that he takes that was part of God's predictions, it will help you rescue yourself from self-condemnation, self-hatred, and self-punishment if you've ever said to yourself or heard somebody say, I'll never forgive myself for that or I'm really beating myself up over that, if you struggle with that kind of perfectionism or that kind of self-criticism, I want you to look at Jesus' beating. Was it sufficient or not? Because when you say, Jesus died for my sins plus I'm going to beat myself up as if that somehow adds to his beating. You are not trusting in Christ and his scourging for you. You think somehow by beating yourself up, by not forgiving yourself, by living under guilt and shame and condemnation one more week or one more month, you're somehow adding to his beating. God wants you to know there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That you are fully covered with what you've done, past, present, and future. And God wants you to be free. And being free means looking at his beating and saying, I'm going to trust his timing and trust his beating, and I'm going to walk in freedom of grace. And yet, despite that evidence, this trial and this courtyard by no means believes. By no means. The evidence is irrelevant. In fact, the next thing they say is, Are you saying you're the Christ? Soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. Exhibit B, testimony, Christ. They're also going to mention the term son of man, which is kind of the flip side of Christ. I put these two words together because they're two sides of the same coin. What does it mean for Jesus to be the king? Now, when many of us think of Jesus Christ, we think Christ is his last name, mostly because of vulgarity. You know, people saying Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ was his title. The word Christ means the anointed one. And this has deep ramifications in the Old Testament. Think specifically of Samuel. Samuel's going to go anoint the king. He anointed the first, coin, which, the first king, which was Saul. And Saul disobeys God, doesn't destroy the Amalekites, doesn't wait for Samuel and takes in his own hands to sacrifice something only the priest could do. So Samuel shows up and says, Saul, God has taken the kingdom from you and given it to someone better than you. And he refuses to repent. Samuel goes to Jesse's house and Jesse brings out all this boys, seven or eight of them. And they all look like, you know, men's, men's warriors. He's like, man, these look like kings. God is, is it? Nope. Nope, 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 nope. None of them? Nope. God says, do not look like man looks at the outward appearance, for I look at the heart. Jess, you got any more sons? Oh, yeah, we got the, the ruddy one we keep out there taking care of the sheep. And Samuel's like, we're going to sit here, stand here until he comes. And they're just staring at each other. And it's like a day's journey to go get David. David comes back. Samuel's <laughs> just staring at him. Why don't you invite them all? And God says, this is the one who has a heart for me. And Samuel takes out oil, symbol of God's presence. He pours it over David's head. He's the anointed one. Now Saul's still reigning as king. He's in the throne. But David is now anointed. He is the king in waiting who's not yet on the throne. Jesus is saying, I am the king, the anointed one, the Christ Christ. I'm just not yet seated on my throne. So they're going to try and crucify him to show he's not the king. He's going to show, oh, no, 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 no. By crucifying me, you're going to move me from the anointed king not yet on my throne to actually seated on the throne. Which is why he replies the way he does. If you're the Christ, tell us! And Jesus says, why would I tell you? you? You by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me. And then here's his reply. Hereafter, the son of man will seat at the right hand of the power of God. And we've been learning this is Jesus' favorite phrase for himself, the son of man. It's a very specific term predicted by Daniel in a vision hundreds of years earlier. It's also about a God-man who will eventually sit on the throne. And that's why these 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 words are related to each other, the king, Christ the anointed king to be, and the son of man, the king who will reign on high. Let me give you a little background on the on the term the son of man. I want to show you a quick video that does a good job of summarizing how this concept from Daniel, what Jesus mentions here, and even the book of Genesis all come together. Let's watch.
1: Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf, like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward. This is where Daniel is enslaved having this bizarro dream exactly now watch what happens next in daniel's dream he sees into god's throne room where a court is set up and god condemns the beast to destruction that's great and then daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne oh right the throne that humanity left behind right there hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside god until now Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human, and he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more. All humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, huh. worship. So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself.
0: So both of these terms in these religious people using shorthand, when you begin to understand, he's claiming to be the Christ, the anointed king, and he's claiming to be the Son of Man, the predicted Daniel son of man the God man who would sit on the throne and these are the exhibits and that's why they're going to crucify him for blasphemy they know exactly what he's claiming by using these terms but I said when we weigh this evidence what does it do for you and I if the prophet helps us trust his timing understanding he's the king helps you follow the real king not just was it Buddha was it Muhammad was it Jesus there's so much evidence actual detailed evidence Jesus is the son of man predicted by Daniel But practically, are you following this king? You might call yourself a Christian. You might say, yeah, he's the king of my life. But is he really? What's the first thing you go to for comfort? Jesus? Or nachos? Jesus? Or pleasure? Jesus? Or your bank account? You see, the question is, what do you really anoint? Have you really anointed Jesus as your practical king day in and day out, even though you call yourself a Christian? Or have you said Jesus is the kingdom, but you're not putting him on the throne? You've actually anointed something else your approval, how well you perform as a wife, as a husband, the size of your territory, the size of your influence. Who's the real king? Maybe today's the day you re-anoint Jesus as your king, the one you're going to go to. Because a king might require a sacrifice that you don't want to give, but he's the king. He might require obedience, but he's the king. He might be the ultimate allegiance you need to call to. Is that your ultimate allegiance, your source of power and might? How many of you know the story of Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson had anointed his whole life power. He was part of the Watergate scandal and he was Nixon's kind of right-hand man. And his whole life, he lived for or anointed power. He ends up being put in prison. In prison, he realized he didn't have any power, didn't have any freedom, and found he didn't have a lot of friends. Yet it was Christians who came into that jail and into that prison who shared a God who could love him despite what he had done, who could be his king. Where power had failed him, this king would love him and accept him and forgive him and give him freedom even while incarcerated before God. And Chuck Colson made a decision to become a born again Christian. And really, that was his decision when he went from anointing power to anointing Jesus. He spent the rest of his life developing a ministry called Prison Fellowship, where he sent people into prison so other people could know how to anoint the King for freedom and forgiveness in their life. Who's your King? Who's your Christ? Who's your Son of Man? They saw the evidence and, again, rejected it by no means. But their immediate response to this conversation is to bring up a fourth name for Jesus. Are you saying you're the Son of God? These just seem to flow together as if they're having a conversation they understand that maybe we don't. So hopefully we have understood those terms. I hope this term will even more so help you understand Exhibit C. Then they all said, are you then the Son of God? He said to them, you rightly say that I am. So all these terms are coming together. Now, what does it mean to be the son of God? The son of God is someone who represented God on earth. Now, this had deep Hebrew implications and it had deep Greek Roman implications. I want to talk about the Hebrew first, then the Greek Roman. Start with the Hebrew. In 2 Samuel, there was a prediction given to David. He's now King David by God. God turns to David and says, Hey, David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed. Someone's going to come from your body after you. Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. To which we're thinking, oh, he's talking about his son Solomon. Maybe. Keep going. He shall build a house for my name, Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oh, forever. Solomon's kingdom lasts forever. And then he goes on, verse 14, says, you know, your son is actually going to be my son. I, verse 14, will be his father. Well, which is it? Is David the human his father or is God the eternal his father? He says both. He will be my son. So the son of God is the son of David. And this would be someone who represented God's kingdom on earth to draw people to God's heavenly kingdom by what they saw in the earthly kingdom. In Psalms 2, it's called a messianic psalm, also speaking of the Messiah, uses the same words. I'll start here in verse 6. Yet I have set my king, God says, here's that king again, my Christ, my anointed one, on my holy hill in Zion. In Jerusalem, my king's going to reign. And I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, the Messiah, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So here's this idea that God is going to put a king, a messiah on earth to represent his kingdom and draw other people to God's heavenly kingdom by how he rules in the earthly kingdom. Which is why this term son of God used for the messiah is someone who represents God's kingdom on earth. But this had profound implications to the Greeks and Romans as well. What do I mean? Well as jesus says in luke 11 someone greater than solomon is here what was predicted back in second samuel wasn't just about solomon it was about the messiah i am greater than solomon and in the greek world the term son of god was a very specific term if you reached into your pocket and pulled out a coin in those days you would see it said on the coin caesar tiberius the son of god When Caesar Augustus died, he was known as Divine Augustus. He brought a gospel, a good news to the world. And when Caesar Augustus died, I think it was a a meteor or something went through the sky. And everybody said, oh, he has ascended into heaven. So they believe that Divine Augustus was now reigning in heaven. And his son Tiberius, the next emperor, declared himself to be the son of divine Augustus, the son of God. And so, Jesus' term, the son of God, is going to confront the Roman idea, Tiberius, the emperor, is not the son of God, I'm the son of the real God. And these two kingdoms are going to be in conflict. In fact, next week, you're going to learn so much about these pieces. About once a year, twice a year, I do a one-man drama. I've been writing this one for six months, been memorizing it for a month. Next week, I'm playing Pilate. And we're going to get all the background of Pilate's confrontation with Jesus. And Pilate is actually the one that sets up the temple to emperor worship in Caesarea Maritime. And so he is actually bringing in Caesar worship into Jerusalem and causes all this havoc. So if you've ever seen one of the one-man dramas, or you haven't before, next week at the equipping service, we're going to dig into Luke 23 in a very unique way, and you're going to understand even more about this idea of the Son of God. Now, Tiberius was saying, I represent my father's kingdom, Caesar Augustus, on earth. I bring water. I bring the Roma Paxa, good transportation, safety. Jesus is going to tell his disciples, just like I, Jesus, represent my Father's kingdom on earth, I want you as my followers, as co-heirs with Christ and sons of the Most High God, while you're living on earth before you die, to represent your Father's kingdom on earth. Which is why, have you ever seen someone with a Christian fish on their, on their car? You know what that means? That means they're bad drivers, typically, is what that means. <laughs> the Christian fish was a symbol, it was an acronym used by the early Christians as a creed to what it is that Jesus represented. So if you've ever seen the Christian fish, it actually stands for a Greek word, ichthus. So the Greek word ekthus is the word for fish in Greek. And that's an acronym spelled iota, kasai, theta, um, unicron, and sigma. And each of those letters actually is a key to the creed. So start with the iota, the I. Isus is Jesus' name in Greek. So when you wrote the fish, you were saying, I believe in Jesus as my Isus. He's Jesus. The next word, the kassai, is the first word in Christos, Christ. I believe Jesus is the anointed one. He's the king. The next word, the theta, stands for the Greek word for God, a theo. So Jesus Christ, God, Weas is son, the son of God. And the last word, the S, the, stands for soter, which is savior. So when you saw the Christian fish, it didn't just mean I'm a bad driver or somebody who's going to flick you off and then feel bad because they probably shouldn't be having so much road rage. It was actually a creed to declare, I believe Jesus is the anointed one, the son of God, and my savior, soter, which is where we get the theology of soteriology that God saves us from ourselves. So, this idea then gets picked up by Jesus and his disciples, and he says, I want you to be my kingdom and priests. I want you to be the sons of God, who wherever you go, whatever you do, you're extending my father's kingdom. You're acting like sons of God. How you pray, how you give, how you serve. And my church, my ecclesia, the word for church, is to be my representation of my father's kingdom. And that's what we're about as a church being God's ecclesia. Several years ago, and a couple came down after our 10 o'clock service. He's crying together. I said, hey, what's going on? He just told me he's been having an affair this week, and we decided to come to church. I'm like, wow, I'm not sure I'd be at church if I just got that news. We cried together, and we prayed together, and I got both of them connected to some Older men and women in the church began to get them counseling, teach them how to repent, teach them how to, you know, untangle themselves and get into Bible studies. And for the first time, both of them got into Bible studies and began to find healing and restoration. I saw them just a couple uh, weeks ago. And just to see what God has done over the last couple months, the last couple years, as we represented God's kingdom, we didn't compromise truth. What you did is wrong. We didn't compromise grace and mercy. God can work with us broken people. In restoring others. When eight people got baptized last night. We're representing God's kingdom on earth. People have found that Jesus Christ, son of God, savior in my life. I'm not perfect, but I have a God who washed me clean. That's what it's about. That's what we're about. When we give, when we serve, when we study the Bible. It's not just so that our heads get more full with knowledge. It's so that we can understand our purpose in life to represent his kingdom. Which is why our key takeaway today, the main application he wants for us is back to that initial verse. He wants us to develop a mean belief. He says, I tell you, by no means will believe. So the opposite of that is a by any means belief. And in contrast to people who don't have evidence, we have evidence. Actual, archaeological, historical, philosophical evidence. We have the means to believe. And God wants us to have a mean belief. The mean belief that can stand up against temptation. A mean belief that can stand up against uh, against hostility. A mean belief that says, I'm going to stand and trust despite the beating I'm under. I want a mean belief that can be immovable and steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. I got a mean belief because I serve a mean, powerful God. And by any means, God, in this situation, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. While that court, by no means, believed the evidence, God wants you and I, in contrast, to by any means have the kind of mean, tough, persevering, not compromising belief to trust in Him in any and every situation. In fact, several years ago I read a book called Jesus on Trial. The writer of the book's name was David. And David, for years grew up in a religious household who believed in the Ten Commandments and things like that, but he didn't understand who Jesus was. Someone invited him to an event called a CBMC luncheon where he heard someone talk about the evidence for Jesus. He got into a Bible study for the first time. He'd never really been in the Bible. And in his book, Jesus on Trial, scriptures quoted so often the publishers told him not to quote so much scripture but he said the scripture i read is what spoke to me and gave me the evidence that it testified that jesus was who he says he was And this guy was a 30-year lawyer and the evidence from getting in the bible convinced him jesus was god you may know him he's got a famous brother named rush limbaugh his name was david limbaugh and it was someone putting him in the bible as a lawyer that the evidence developed a mean belief. Where most of his books in the past were all about politics, his last six books are all about the Bible and Jesus, and how he's developed a belief in God based on the evidence. That's what God wants for you and for me. A mean belief that stands up against the toughness of life. Let's pray. Father, we just admit that we do not have the foresight often to see our own brokenness. We need other people in our life. We need groups of people in our life to help us on our spiritual journeys, deal with our brokenness, deal with our traps. We're so thankful, Father, that you don't leave us to our own means, but you chased after us because you want to be our king. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Amen. Thank you, Chad. Um, Thanks for being here today. My name is John Kirby. I'm the Connections Pastor at Horizon. And as uh, Chad was talking about uh, God's timing, I'm just thinking amazing timing. You happen to be here uh, 52 weeks out of the year. Today's amazing timing, not the Bengals opener. But um, tonight we're bringing in Ken Kington. Amazing timing, especially if you're a man, because we're starting authentic manhood tonight. It's um, six weeks that we're actually paying. This is kind of crazy. We're paying a guy who lives in Atlanta to fly to Cincinnati Um, taking him out of his professional comedian um, bookings because we're trying to invest in men, Uh, especially if you're a man who's been to Horizon, but you haven't been anything beyond Horizon. Um, In my 18 years here, uh, probably once a month or at least once every two months, I'll have an older man come up to me and say, John, I just wish that I had invested more in some male um, Christ-oriented friendships. I wish... I'd been a little smarter about investing in my kids, and yeah, my wife wasn't as lucky as I thought she was just to be married to me. Um, so we're bringing Ken in. He just uh, he inspires us. He can speak to your heart and your mind. So if you're a man and you can hear my voice, you know, come tonight at eight o'clock, or come tomorrow morning at six oh nine, and just come one time. Surprise us as having too little faith to to have bought enough books. For all of you um, just to come and hear Ken challenge us. And women, um, we haven't forgotten about you either. This is perfect timing for women to go and look at our website and sign up for an opportunity. There's two evening opportunities. There's a morning opportunity uh, for women to connect and grow. So um, glad you're here. This really is, of all the 52 weeks of the year, the best time to Go home right after the Bengals opener and sign up for something, look for something. Men, you can even just show up. Women, you're not allowed to, but men, you can even just show up tonight and just try one time because I know you don't want to sign up for anything. And um, just be surprised by Ken Kington. Thanks for being here to Horizon.